You can take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. We're looking at verses 5 through 12 this morning. And uh, the title of our message is Abounding in the Work of the Lord. <clears throat> I met a couple of high schoolers this week here from Grace Church, uh, and um, uh, they told me uh, they don't come to Steadfast. They're in high school, and their parents are in a different fellowship group, but their parents uh, to help them in the evenings calm down, get ready for bed, and, and when they're you know lying in bed to listen to sermons. Uh, and they told me that they have been listening to Steadfast uh, and that it's, uh, it's like this is one of their favorite podcasts is to listen to the messages. And I said, well, have they been beneficial? And one of them says to me, oh, yeah, I'm out like in 10 minutes. <laughs> so uh, I'm hoping that this message doesn't have the same effect this morning. As you're listening, you never know how many different applications a message can have. Uh, maybe in the nursery we could use these. I don't know if, if that's like an effective thing. <laughs> Abounding in the work of the Lord. We're looking at our passage. Please follow along with me as I begin reading in chapter 16, verse 5, which says this. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren." But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. We're going to stop there. I had originally thought maybe I would go a little bit further in this chapter. We're coming towards the end of 1 Corinthians here, the last chapter. And this is a section where when you're reading the book, you might just kind of read it and say, okay, well, that was just some information for them, and there's not much there. But I, as I was working on this this week, I just kept on uh, reducing the numbers that I was going to try and cover because I kept on noticing more and more things about this section, and I'm quite excited. It was a few weeks ago that we finished chapter 15, and we came to that last verse, uh, verse 58 of chapter 15, which says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And I talked some about that phrase, always abounding in the work of the Lord, specifically the word abounding. Um, does anybody remember what I said about the word abounding? Those of you that were awake, it was at the beginning, I think, of the, the message. No, I don't know. Lavishing, yeah, lavishing, and 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 uh, we, we we think about this word um, abounding. It carries the idea of exceeding the requirements. The same word is found. I mentioned in Ephesians chapter one, verse five, verse seven and eight. Um, Paul wrote, "In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence." The New American Standard says. The, the riches of his grace, which he was or lavishing, or which he lavished on us, or lavishing on us the riches of his grace. So God has so much abundantly overdone grace that it's abounded to us. It has been lavished upon us more than we can possibly uh, appreciate. When we think um, that uh, God gives his grace, he... he he doesn't just give us grace. He abounds in his giving of grace. Commenting on God's grace, Spurgeon said this. He said, 
quote, observe the rain which drops from heaven. It falls on the desert as, re- as well as the fertile field. It drops on the rock that will refuse its fertilizing moisture as well as on the soil that opens its gaping mouth to drink it in with gratitude. It falls on the streets of the city where it is not required and where men will even curse it for coming. And it falls more freely where the sweet flowers have been panting for it and the withering leaves have been rustling forth their prayers. Such is the grace of God. It does not visit us because we ask for it, much less because we deserve it, but as God wills it. Day after day, we enjoy God's grace. Sinners enjoy God's grace. Sinners who we do not deserve it, and sinners who who some of us say that they do not even want it or care about it. But he does it anyways. Each day is a gift of grace, and we have so much to be grateful for because he lavishes grace upon us. It abounds so when we think about that word abounding, we come to this verse 58 of, of chapter 15, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's this, it's this uh, motivation to overdo ourselves if, as if we could in ministry, uh, to be abundant in our service to him. We should be a people who lavish our time, our resources, um, our effort, our energy in the work of the Lord. But instead, naturally, because we're sinners and because this world tries to promote self-centeredness in our lives, we are often self-centered, self-focused, not concerned about the work of the Lord. And so one of the amazing patterns of church history is that, generally speaking, whenever the church has struggled or been outlawed, or persecuted, believers tend to abound more and more in the work of the Lord. At the end of Acts chapter 7, after the first martyr, Stephen was murdered uh, for preaching Christ. Um, uh, It says, uh, the very next uh, chapter 8, verse 1, it says that at that time a great persecution rose out against the church that was in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The very thing that caused them to flee and lose their homes and livelihood and be, you know, flee from, from Jerusalem uh, caused them to become more bold in their proclamation. We've seen that in, in, even in our own day, countries where the gospel is closed, like China and in the past Russia where the gospel has been outlawed. Those who are in the church seem more determined than ever to proclaim the truth, even at high risk to their own safety. But in countries where the gospel and gospel preaching is not outlawed, it seems places where there's freedom and prosperity and peace, it seems like the church loses focus on God's work. It ends up oftentimes fighting amongst uh, ourselves or discussing or discarding essential doctrines, not concerned at all about the authority of Scripture, but rather about pleasing men. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper wrote this. He says, quote, Comfort and ease and affluence and prosperity and safety and freedom often cause a tremendous inertia in the church. The very thing that we think would produce personnel and energy and creative investment of time and money for the missionary cause instead produce the exact opposite. Weakness, apathy, lethargy, self-centeredness, and a preoccupation with security. So when we think about Paul's final note of chapter 15, verse 58, that no matter what your situation is, if you've been redeemed by a resurrected Savior, if you truly believe in the resurrection and you have a hope of resurrection, then you should abound in the work of the Lord. That's his point. Right before that, he says in 1556, the sting of death is sin and the strength of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. When we come to chapter 16, it 
it turns out to be a very practical chapter for us. Even though it's, it's a straightforward account where he talks about giving in verses 1 through 4 and then his plans and future plans and greetings and so forth as he closes. Um, but we can benefit from this section, specifically thinking of verses 5 through 12, because we have an opportunity to observe those who did abound in the work of the Lord. And we see in this closing section details about someone who abounds in the work of the Lord. We find five characteristics of those who abound in the work of the Lord that really motivate us to avoid a self-centered inertia in the church. Uh, They help us to avoid a weak focus in ministry. So we're going to look at these five characteristics of those who abounded in the work of the Lord. And um, the first characteristic is found in verses 5 and the first part of verse 6. And the, the characteristic is those who abound in the work of the Lord make plans, but are also flexible. They make plans, but they're flexible. And part of what makes this section so rich is learning some of the background behind it and putting it together from various passages and what we know about the early church and those individuals who ministered there. Because if you're not familiar with these names then, yeah, you just kind of read over it, and okay, this person and that person and this person. But as you look at this, uh, we'll see, at least with this first characteristic, that those who abound in the work of the Lord make plans but are also very flexible. Take a look at verse 5. It says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So Paul, we're reminded here, made plans. He didn't just wander around aimlessly, traveling wherever he randomly he wanted to visit in the Mediterranean world, where he just happened to be. I'd preach Christ a little here, a little there, encourage churches whenever he had the chance. He planned out his journeys with specific purposes in mind. He wanted to preach Christ where Christ had not been proclaimed, and he wanted to strengthen churches that needed encouragement and sound teaching. And it was with that first in mind that he came to Corinth in the first place. It was about A.D. 48, And Paul was sent out by the church in Antioch to preach Christ. Um, His first missionary journey was with Barnabas, basically was to the island of Cyprus. Um, And second missionary journey, he traveled further west, made it uh, to Asia, um, and really all the way to Greece, where he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. After that, he returned back to Antioch. And it was on his third missionary journey that he was traveled again to the west, he ended up in, in Ephesus, where he met some of the believers who had been taught by Apollos. So I, I want to go and, and turn to Acts chapter 18 with me. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 16. It's very important that we, we get a picture of who all's involved in this and what, his, what Paul's movements were. So when he was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24... This is just prior to him arriving in Ephesus. It describes who Apollos was in Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. So he's born in northern Africa, all right? At some point, he was trained in the scriptures, probably in Israel. Uh, It says he's an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. So this guy could teach. He He had good study skills, good verbiage. He was a very capable speaker, and he was strong, had a strong knowledge of God's Word. That would be the Old Testament Scriptures. Verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning the Lord, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he had only heard of John the Baptist. He had only heard that the Messiah was coming and was coming near, but already he was eloquent, he was accurate, he was passionate. This is the kind of preacher that you want to listen to, right? And so uh, Apollos was a very capable minister, even before he was saved. He had not been saved at this point because he had not yet, uh, he had not yet heard the gospel of Christ, the Messiah. He just believed that the Messiah was coming. So he had only been baptized through John's baptism. Uh, and and uh, you could say he was saved before the foundation of the earth. You could say that God called him. 
but it appears as though he hadn't really heard about details about the Messiah. And so, um, uh, and, and though he believed what he had revealed to him from an Old Testament sa- point of view, he could have been saved. But from a New Testament, he had not yet heard the gospel. And so it says that um, uh, verse 26, <clears throat> Acts 18, he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And he wanted to go across to Achaia. So that's where he gets saved. They, Aquila and Priscilla knew the gospel. They knew about the Messiah. They knew that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave. They explained that to him. He obviously uh, believes that. Now he wants to go to Achaia. Uh, that would be over uh, where Corinth is at. And um, it says in verse 27, he wanted to go across to Achaia. The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Chapter 19, it says, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, because he's in Achaia, he's built, he's, people are coming to faith in Christ, um, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Those were the previous disciples that Apollos had been with, right? Chapter 2, or verse 2 of chapter 19 in Acts, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit in verse 3. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So Paul carries on preaching the gospel to these disciples um, that, that, that were in, at least in the same boat with Apollos, probably former disciples of him or with him. And so um, we have Paul now on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus, spends three years there. Towards the end of that stay, around A.D. 55, AD 1955 was the beginning of the tri-five years for the Chevy, 55, 56, 57, three best years for every Chevy. Uh, anyways, but... Um, this is A.D. 55, 1900 years before the Chevy, uh, the 55 Bel Air. Anyways, um, A.D. 55, he writes this letter. Just mnemonic devices here to help us, you know. Uh, he writes this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, okay? Keep all this in mind. This is all really helpful. It's going to be helpful as we go through this. His plan was to go back and visit the various churches north of there in Macedonia and then down into lower Greece, which is Achaia, in order to encourage and strengthen them. I have a map here, but I'm going to try and explain it for those who are listening as they're falling asleep right now. Um, but um, we have, uh, so the Mediterranean world, pretty simple. You've got, you've got, you know, three big continents that stick down. You've got Italy, which looks like a boot, right? You've got Greece, which looks like two grease splotches that are right on top of each other, and they're joined by a narrow strip of land. And that narrow strip is right where Corinth is at, Okay. And you've got turkey, which looks like a turkey, okay? If it's, you can pull the feathers off and you cook it and it's on the side. It's oval, and turkey's a big, long oval. So I know it's a bit of a stretch, but you got Italy, Greece, and Turkey. And there, there's the sea, the Adriatic Sea separates Greece from Italy, and the Aegean Sea celebra- separates Greece from over on the east, Turkey. Paul is... On the west coast of Turkey, he's in Ephesus, which is right there on the coast. And you could look across, and you, you probably wouldn't see it, but you may, you, 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 on a clear day, you know, he, he could, the most direct route was to take a boat straight from Ephesus over to Corinth. But what Paul says his plan is, is to head north through Asia and all the way across the mainland that's northern area of Greece, which is where Philippi is now today, in Thessalonica and Berea. He wanted to visit those cities. And then he wanted to come down to Corinth and collect their offering, among others, encourage them, but the, and spend some significant time with them, and then return back and eventually go back to Palestine to bring the gift and the gifts that he collected to the church and encouraged the church in Jerusalem. So you have this, um, this southern section, and he wants to pass through the northern section. Now read verse 5 again. Take a look at it. It says, 
1 Corinthians 16, verse 5, I am passing through Macedonia. This means much more than I'm just going to, you know, zip through there. This is, it's not the most direct route, and it's a slower route. He could have taken a ship trade across, but his plan was to go and travel there and spend quite a bit of time actually in Macedonia. Notice in verse 8, he says, I will remain in Ephesus until when? Until Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost is the idea of 50, Penta is 5. And so um, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Passover is when we celebrate Easter, right? Because it was when our Lord was crucified and resurrected during the Passover feast. So we have, uh, basically, he's going to spend the spring where he's at in Ephesus. But after Pentecost, he's going to travel north. He hopes to winter. Um, in, in verse 6, Paul says he's hoping to winter, spend the winter months in Corinth. That's December of 55 to February of 56, depending on how you date the book. It's probably when, when you're looking, uh, where you're looking at that. So he spo- hopes to spend those winter months in Corinth, which means very likely he was hoping to spend the summer months in Macedonia visiting those churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All right? So he, he's, he's really just going to take his time, but although he hoped to spend, this is where it gets kind of interesting because these are his plans. He lays it out here in 1 Corinthians. He writes this letter from Ephesus to them saying, this is what I hope to do, and I hope to spend several months with you. But that doesn't appear to have happened. Um, although he had hoped to spend several months with him, it doesn't look like he did. In fact, something happened on that trip to Corinth. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know it was traumatic. We know that there was a major crisis while he was there, probably an offense against him that caused him to make that visit very brief. We know that it promoted him to write at least two more letters to the Corinthians, one of which we have, which is 2 Corinthians, and another one which happened in between that, which we call the sorrowful letter because he mentions the word sorrow in 2 Corinthians so often. And we also know that he sent Titus twice to the Corinthians to help resolve this crisis. Now, to get an idea of what this crisis is, because again, getting a picture for Paul's abundant ministry. Um, Let's just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's probably just one page over in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to look at verse 15 all the way to chapter 2, verse 4, and we're going to try and just talk through this and get an idea of what must have happened. There are a couple of different uh, plausible theories that, that theologians hold, a couple major ones, but I, I think what happened here is, well, I'll just explain it as we, as we read through here. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in this confidence, I, intend at first, I attended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So he at first wanted to come to them, uh, travel through Macedonia, visit them, spend some time with them, go back up to the churches of Macedonia, come back and visit them a second time and then go on his way. That's what was he'd really hoped to do. Verse 17, therefore, I was not vac- uh, vac- uh, vacillating when I intended to do this, was I, or what purpose do I, uh, or do I purpose according to the flesh, so that you, with me, uh, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. But God is faithful. Our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy was not yes and no, but is yes in him. He's just saying, I'm trying to be consistent. There must have been some sort of question about his consistency. Verse 20, for as many are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen, the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul 
that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Something happened in Corinth, and he's trying to spare them the pain of him visiting again. I'll, I'll carry on here. When we, by the way, I'm hoping that after we finish First Corinthians, uh, probably next fall, I'm going to start Second Corinthians, and I'm really excited about that. And I, I love the background of this. So I've said that before. I said I was going to start it in the spring, and I never did. So who knows? Maybe we'll be in First Corinthians 16 for a long, long time. But here we go. Uh, I, I plan to go through Macedonia, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> verse 24. Not that we lorded over you for faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Verse, chapter 2 of Second Corinthians. But I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Which tells us that his first visit to them was very sorrowful. It made them sad. It made him sad. Something happened. For if I cause you sorrow, then who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? In other words, I caused you sadness, but now you make me happy. And then he says, verse 3, this is the very thing I wrote you so that when I came, you would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy, that, that, that my joy would be the joy of you all. Verse 4 is key. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. That's the sorrowful letter. And I was, I was, I was, in, I was just afflicted and in anguish, not so that you would be made sorrowful. I didn't want to make you feel bad. That was my motive. But that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So here's what I think happened. And again, I'll share more about this towards the end of this message. But uh, piecing things together, it seems as though there was an individual who accosted Paul, probably publicly. Probably they had some sort of church meeting and somebody stood up and just railed on Paul and questioned his authority and apparently had quite a following, so much so that it hurt Paul and devastated him and split the church. And Paul left. And then sometime after that, it seems like that person was confronted that person may have been, even been disciplined out of the church. And that person then was restored to the church, repented, was restored to the church. We're going to see this a little bit later uh, when we come back to this chapter in 2 Corinthians 2 and we look at 2 Corinthians 7 because I think there's, there's a lot that, that goes on there. But regardless of all the details, I think for now it's just important for us to note that Paul had planned to go there and spend a long time with him, and he didn't. It was a very brief visit, and it was hurtful, and it was painful. And he wrote to them again, trying to show his love for them. Um, and there's something to be said about making plans, but being very flexible. And that's what we see with Paul. It's laid out here just kind of in a matter-of-fact way at the end of the book. But if you realize, hey, there's a lot going on here. And if you go back and read 1 Corinthians, we have this idea that, hey, he had certain plans and he really loved them. He wanted to spend time with them. And um, so I think, I think that he also uh, recognized God's will, that though he had plans, um, he, he, he had he had talked about, he talks about in this passage um, the, the, the will of God. And even in verse 6, we see that perhaps I will stay with you. It's his desire. It's his hope. Anytime we make plans, first of all, I think, I think just thinking about these verses, first of all, I just wonder how many of us are really intentional about our gospel proclamation. How many of us are, have plans that we, we want to do this? We want to see these people encouraged in the faith. We want to see these people evangelized. We want to see this done for the kingdom, and this is how we plan to do it. And then how many of us are going to be flexible enough that when it doesn't work out, we figure out now what, now I need, now my mission is to reaffirm my love for the Corinthians, and, and, and it changes. 
but it all starts with plans. And I love the intentionality of these verses, verses that we would just gloss over, but there's so much there. James said in James 4, verse 13, "'Come now, you who say today or tomorrow "'we will go to such and such a city "'and spend a year there and buy and sell and make profit, "'whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. "'For what is your life, even as a vapor, "'it appears a little time and then vanishes away. "'Instead, you ought to say, "'If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that.'" And I think there's also something from James there in that we make plans when it comes to finances. We make plans when it comes to personal uh, issues and education and all these things. But what are our plans to abound for the Lord? What plans do you have that are specific in ways that you can abound in the ministry of the Lord? So those who abound in the work of the Lord, they make plans, but they're flexible. A second characteristic of those who abound, make, uh, abound in the work of the Lord, is that they are dependent upon others. They're not Lone Ranger. Paul was very dependent. He, he could have been Lone Ranger. He, had, he was a tent maker, and so he could have done that. But take a look at the end of verse 6. Uh, verse 6, again, in the beginning, says, perhaps I will stay with you even if in the winter. The end says, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. So Paul was not just uh, willing to make adjustments in his plans. He was willing to make adjustments in his support as well. And there's something in, in, in the, the wording here, this word to send me, that has the idea that they will support him. It's not explicit in the text, um, but there was something uh, there. Um, in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, remember Paul argued, you may not remember, it was a long time ago in chapter 9, but Paul argued for the right to minister, as a minister of the gospel, to be supported financially by those whom, to whom he ministered to. So Paul says, I have a right to be supported by you. Uh, then surprisingly, after arguing that point and proving that point, he reminded the Corinthians that he had not allowed them to support him financially. And there were a couple of reasons for that. One is he didn't want anybody accusing him of preaching Christ for financial gain since there were, you know, false teachers at that time and he didn't want to be confused with anybody who came in and was teaching a new teaching and doing it for sordid gain. But also he considered it an extra reward, a privilege to be able to preach the gospel without charge that is to be self-supporting. And in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 18, he says, "'What then is my reward?' that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And when we were there, we were talking about the fact that Paul didn't have a right. He, Paul didn't have a choice in preaching the gospel. Jesus Christ appeared to him and told him what he was going to be doing. So his, he, he said, I can take no credit for my call to the ministry. I was forced into this job. So I gave nothing towards this. This wasn't my decision, but I can contribute to it by supporting myself. And he found certain joy in that, in being able to, to do that. That was part of his motive. But now in chapter 16, verse 6, one of the reasons he gives them for visiting them is so that they could send him on his journey wherever he goes. And, and, and that, again, that word carries the idea of providing someone with food, with money, with traveling companions so that they could have a safe journey. We know already that he said that they would help, they would send companions with him to help uh, keep the offering accountable. Um, and uh, it, it sounds maybe a little bit presumptuous. You know, if you got a letter and you said, hey, I'm coming to visit you, and then I want you to support me as I go to the next place I go, you'd think, wow, this is interesting. Um, but um, from a biblical perspective, Paul was offering them a really great opportunity. In light of the fact that he'd refused to accept financial support from them when he was among them, he now offers them this opportunity. And this was a big deal. I remember um, you know, when, when I was home on furlough from Africa, uh, when I was serving as a missionary, 19 years there, and I had several furloughs. And I, I came back one year, and um, I had spoken in, in a church, church I grew up in, in Seal Beach. And I can still remember standing in front of that church afterwards, and this little old lady, I mean, this just frail old lady, but man, she was wagging her finger at me. You, you would expect I stepped on her cat or something like that. I mean, she was, she was, in, she was all, and she says, I want you to remember... 
And I, I'm, I'm, okay, you got my attention. She says, I want you to remember that I can't go to Africa, but I'm supporting you. And when you are there, you're there for me. Don't you forget that. Yes, ma'am. Right? <laughs> I will never forget that. Uh, I've had people try to, I mean, I remember early on when I was in college, someone tried to sell me their product, okay, Amway. So I'm, I'm not against Amway. It's a good product. Okay? But, 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 but they said to me, if you invest a few years in this now, you could go as a self-supporting missionary and never have to get support. And uh, looking back at that, I, I just think the many blessings of partnering with other people. Because we all have a responsibility to preach the gospel to all the nations. And I do not believe there's a shortage of resources to do that. I believe there's a shortage of qualified individuals who are doing that. And so we need to find those individuals and we need to get behind them and support them with joy. It's an opportunity for us to fulfill the Great Commission. We are responsible to fulfill it wherever we are, but we also have a responsibility throughout the world to the ends of the earth to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed. So it is a privilege. And Paul, from a biblical perspective, is really just speaking matter-of-factly about how they can help him abound in the work of the Lord, and by doing that, they also are abounding in the work of the Lord. This seems strange, but it goes against our entire society. We don't think like this because we're so influenced by the world. We're not thinking in a gospel way. We're not thinking about what can we do as a fellowship, as a koinonia, as a body to actually get this out. We're thinking worldly. It was um, Leonard Capsman who was the producer of one of the world's most popular TV soap operas, the show Dallas. Um, he was asked why the show, why he thought the show was such a success. And he said, because of four key ingredients, greed, wealth, fame, and sex. He said he deliberately placed greed at the top of the list. But for those of us who realize that everything in this world will pass away and that the only thing that is really lasting is God's word, our souls, and now we have the knowledge of a resurrected body that will, that will be uh, worshiping the Lord for all eternity. Um, we just think of uh, differently. And so when we think of the opportunity to participate in a work for the Lord that is abounding, it's gain for us. It's something that we want to invest in. Um, so those who abound in the work of the Lord make plans but are flexible. Those who abound in the work of the Lord are dependent upon others. Thirdly, those who abound in the work of the Lord make time for others. Speaking, oh man, I'm in trouble. Um, Verse 7 and 8, I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. You can't abound in the work of the Lord unless you're willing to invest time in other people. We've already talked about Paul and the months and months he wanted to spend with them. It wasn't just, just you know, uh, uh, and, and his time with them wasn't just him on his phone the whole time. Uh, Verse, we know this because they didn't have phones, but we also know this because Acts 20, verse 31, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's in Ephesus. He's saying, hey, night and day, I was ministering. First Thessalonians 2, 9, for you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not to burden any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And so, here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if the Lord permits, right? He's got this flexibility as well. And um, he hopes to spend time with them. And this is a challenge for us. This is a challenge. A lot of our time is self-focused. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said it well when he wrote, place a high value on your time. Be more careful of not losing it than you would of losing your money. Do not 
Do not let worthless recreations, idle talk, unprofitable company, or sleep rob you of your precious time. Be more careful to escape that person, action, or course of life that would rob you of your time than you would escape thieves and robbers. So our time is important. And just just thinking about this, family, I'm just thinking about being intentional about spending time ministering to others, getting to know them, really being intentional about that. To abound in the work of the Lord. You can't say, I abound in the work of the Lord if you don't spend time. If you don't spend time, you're not really loving the people. If you really love them, you will want to spend time with them. So if you, and if you don't love them, spend time with them. Learn to love them. Okay, um, fourth characteristic of those who abound in the work of the Lord is they're willing to face opposition, verses 9 through 11. He says, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Verse 10, now if Timothy comes, see, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. We learned some things about Timothy here. It's interesting. Timothy may have been very timid. Okay, we know that in 1 Timothy 4.12, he tells Timothy directly, let no one despise thy youth, but be an example in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And in 2 Timothy 2.1, he says, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we have several times where Paul encourages Timothy with boldness and strength. So he may have been, I mean, Paul was very direct, very bold, especially in his writing, probably more so in his writing than in his speaking. But Timothy seemed to be uh, not as bold. And so I think there's something to be said about this. But I think that the circumstances here, um, I think that Paul, he says in in these verses that there are uh, let no one despise them. He says, right, he says, he says uh, in verse 9, there are many adversaries. And it seems like those adversaries could have been outside of the church. We know of instances where there were. But I think Paul is anticipating that he might have adversaries within the church. You remember in, in, in chapters 1 through 4, this church was divided. Some were saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, who is Peter. There were those who had their heroes, their celebrity hero pastors. Some said, I am of Jesus, which probably meant that no one needs to teach me. I just study Jesus, and so I don't need a teacher. And so there are these divisions in the church. Well, um, take a look back with me at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll pick it up at verse 4, which is where we left off. Again, he's talking about affliction. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears so that you would, you would be made, not so that you'd be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if anyone has caused sorrow, he has not caused sorrow to me, but in some degree, uh, in order not to say too much to all of you. Here's what Paul's saying, I think, in this verse. Is he's saying, hey, there's someone who's offended me and you guys are angry at that guy, but I'm not. He hasn't caused me any sorrow. If he's caused anyone sorrow, it's just you. And then he says, verse six, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Again, if this person spoke up and was, uh, was antagonistic against Paul, and later punished somehow, disciplined by the church body. And now he's back in there. He's saying, hey, that was sufficient. You can imagine someone being restored after leading people astray against Paul, and everybody's upset with him still. And now they're like, grr, I don't want to be around you because of what you did and what you said. And look at verse 7. It's one of the most beautiful verses. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8, wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. What he's saying here is that when you think about, you know, bitterness never should happen. Forgiveness is a promise, but reconciliation is what he's talking about. Reconcile with this guy. Reaffirm your love for him. You can't just say, I forgive you and have 
no contact with him or treat him poorly. If you forgive him, go the next step. Reaffirm your love for him. That's the person who Paul obviously did something against Paul. In, I'm not going to take time, but in um, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 4 through 10, we see that, God, that, that uh, Paul talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And uh, he talks more about this sorrowful episode. And we'll get more into that when we get into 2 Corinthians. But I'm just saying that Paul was not looking to minister in places where they were comfortable or thinking about trials being should be avoided. He was somebody who had learned to be content in whatever circumstances, it says in Philippians 4. And he also uh, is someone who was willing to face opposition. I think there's something in verses 9 through 11 where timid Timothy, he's concerned about Timothy maybe being attacked by someone in Corinth on behalf of Paul because Timothy is Paul's protege. And he's saying to them, he's warning them, he's saying, hey, verse 10, it seems funny unless you kind of know the whole story. Verse 10, if Timothy comes, see, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Seems like, weird. why would he have cause to be afraid? Well, one of the most logical possibilities is that Timothy, young, timid Timothy, who was in his 30s, but still young and, and timid compared to many of them, those who were against Paul might have taken it out on Timothy. I don't think that happened. I think Paul eventually showed up and they took it out on him directly. Okay, fifthly, those who, make, who are abounding in the word of the Lord make plans but are flexible. They're dependent upon others. They make time for others. They're willing to face opposition. And finally, those who abound in the work of the Lord work with others. Verse 12 Concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has the opportunity. Paul never worked alone. We don't find Paul alone ever. He went on his first missionary journey with, Paul, with Barnabas. Next, he went out with Silas. Then he was with Aristarchus and Timothy as travel companions. Um, and Apollos, though, wasn't one of his travel companions. Apollos was somebody who was working somewhat independently of Paul. And knowing the history there, that there was this division, that the church was split over them. And some were saying, I was baptized by Apollos, you know, and I I am of Apollos and I am of Paul and all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it, it really, if there's anybody who could have been a rival of Paul, it was Apollos. He was somewhat independent. And, and look at verse 12, concerning Apollos. Now, remember, that phrase, now concerning or but concerning. This is the sixth time since chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 1, he actually wrote, concerning the things about which you wrote. So this is a cue. This, they probably had written him. And there probably were some in the church. Again, this is somewhat speculative, but, but there was division in the church. And he uses this phrase, now concerning, now concerning. It's always about something that they had evidently written him about. Some were probably saying, hey, send Apollos. Let him, you know. And Paul is not someone to say, ah, I'm not going to send him. He vigorously, he enthusiastically, he encouraged him greatly. That word greatly is um, extensively. It could mean many times I encouraged him. But according to Apollos, it just wasn't the time. It just wasn't the time. I like reading uh, about David Livingston. There are many things. I think in some ways he's a, he's a hero, but in some ways he's not. And some, some ways we learn about his biographies are uh, very open and honest about his shortcomings. And um, Livingston um, is known for getting along famously with Africans, but terribly with missionaries. And that's just kind of the, some of the baggage that comes along with him, and we all have baggage. But uh, it, it, it started early on. His very first trip to Africa on the ship from England to South Africa, a, a journey that usually takes about a month. On that journey, the main, uh, the main mast split on the ship, and so they had to drift in order to get it to actually get to a port where they could actually fix it. So instead of taking a month, it ended up taking three months. You know where they drifted to? Rio de Janeiro. They drifted to Brazil on the way to South Africa. If you know anything about the globe, it's, this is like a long way to drift. I think about that every time that my flight's delayed. Well, I'm in Livingston, it's an extra two months, okay. But anyways, um, so... Uh, but anyways, on that ship, 
he met these other missionaries from his same mission, London, City, London um, uh, Missionary Society, and Mr. and Mrs. Ross. And Mrs. Ross had seasickness. And Livingston, the, the good doctor that he was, tried to help her with that. He was accused by Mr. Ross of making advances on his wife. Livingston was single at the time, okay? Uh, he had designs on Mrs. Ross is what is the way the British would have said it, I guess. So uh, anyways, Livingston was so highly offended that he wrote a friend and he said this, quote, I would have rather flirted with my grandmother than with, than with Ross's blooming bride of 34 or 35, okay? And from that conflict, Livingston was never willing to work with Ross again. He wrote that Mr. Ross had an exceedingly contracted mind. Very small. Uh, he wrote that Mr. Ross should seem, receive no more attention than an illiterate Hottentot child. Hottentot is a derogative term. It's a, it's a critical term used sometimes of uh, the, the, a tribe in Africa, the Khoikhoi. Um, so an illiterate African child. Robert McKenzie wrote in his biography of Livingston that he and Mr. about he and Mr. Ross, and he said they were to remain rivals. Livingston years later refused to have Ross accompany him on research work. But that wasn't Paul, was it? We know that Paul reconciled with John Mark, saying that he was useful years later. That's a whole different story. But Paul encouraged Apollos who could have been his rival. I, loved, I just love these details. I love to see the heart of Paul. What an encouragement. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this little glimpse into the lives of those who completed the race, who abounded in the work of the Lord, who made plans but were flexible, who were dependent upon others, who made time for others, who were willing to face opposition and they worked with others. Help us to abound in your work. May this be an encouragement to us for your name's sake and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.